everybody's got a story going on and you don't necessarily start to think about that until you focus in on that. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yanis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this show, we democratize the film criticism conversation by bringing on fans and critics alike to talk about a movie that really means something to them or something they grew up with, something that, that speaks to them. So, and oftentimes, as is the case with today's guest, that ends up being their favorite film. I've talked on this podcast or the 100th episode about The Matrix, which, which I'm sure we'll get into later on, um, which was my brother Freddie's favorite movie and also mine. So that was, that was uh, why that was a two-part conversation. So this episode, we're talking with Jeff John. Johnson. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. So you're the, the second of three co-hosts for the CF3 podcast. So tell people a, a little bit about uh, about your guys' show and, and what you do over there. Yeah, thank you for having me. It looks like you're trying to complete the trilogy of our of our hosting segment. I think so. <laughs> That's fun. Um, well, I am Jeff, and our podcast is mostly about cult films, fans, and finds. We like to talk about a cult film from the past. We like to go into some news. We also like to review a film. We like to have industry insiders if we can. Otherwise, we like to talk with fans, just basically talk shop about a movie. It can be anything from, say, Clerks all the way to Never Hike Alone, a fan film for Friday the 13th, all the way to The Goonies. And we just go right on down the list. We have a really fun time. We tend to pick on Dane's brother, which is an inside running gag for a lot of people. It's a good time, and we love to chit-chat with just about anybody. You guys have had a really, I think you're only, what, episode 16, I think, just went up as of this recording. Is that correct? Sounds about that right. That is correct. Yeah, so uh, you guys have had a really eclectic group of uh, films that you've covered, as well as guests, and uh, not just saying that because I was on the show recently. But uh, how, how does that, how, you know, how has that been for you guys to, to attract such interesting people and be able to cover such a, a wide range of films? Oh, it's been a real trip. You know, we haven't exactly expected, you know, too many, you know, you start low and you start to build yourself up. We we're just kind of doing this as a hobby. I think Dan alluded to that on his uh, Sing Street episode. Mm-hmm. And we just wanted to do this just for fun. And if we got like 20 listeners, that'd be cool. And if we could talk to a couple people from like, say, Mystery Science Theater 3000 cast, or, hey, we know some people who know people who are friends with others in the industry. Hey, if we can get them on, that'd be fun, too. But mostly we just want to talk shop because it seems like there's a lot of podcasts out there, and we thought we could do something a little different where we can bring in a fan and potentially uh, an industry person so that they can all talk about a movie together and it's just been a lot of fun there's been varied guests we just had uh ming chen from shared universe and uh and it's just been uh, a ton of fun we are learning so much new information more behind the scenes stories and when it's just a bunch of fans we are just having a good time one of our um more unique episodes was when we uh, talked to Miss Dubois on our episode regarding her 
film that she was doing for her student film, and she got into Gremlins with us. And it was nice to hear someone with that kind of a history, as a as she's now a film student, going into then. Okay, so how did you see this movie? What did you think of some of the cinematography and edits? So it's nice to get a lot of different perspectives, not just from seasoned professionals all the way to new people getting into the industry. Yeah, no, that's really cool. And to your point about how this is mostly a hobby for you guys, that you can, you can, I mean, I think that some of the best creative work comes out of that sort of environment. If you're working, if you're doing a podcast or, uh, you know, making a film or writing a novel and you're doing it on deadline out of desperation, you, that a lot of times comes across. But the fact that you guys are making this show as a labor of love to the film and, and just kind of as, as something, uh, you know, to to learn from other people and to like share your, your, your passion for cinema. I think that comes across, uh, in the finished product. So that helps also to distinguish you from a lot of the other podcasts out there. So congrats on that. Hey, thank you. It's interesting too, because the film that we're talking about this episode, which people that are downloading this episode, see it's dark city, right in the name of the file, but, uh, is technically, could have been covered by CF3. I mean, I would kind of consider this a cult film. Would you agree? Oh, I would absolutely agree because it, it straddles that fine line of it's very overlooked and very underrated, but there's enough people that know about it that, you know, 20th anniversary editions come out on DVD and Blu-ray and um, every once in a while, there's an article that pops up online talking about it. There is a, dedicated fan base out there and the more people that know about this the the better if you just want to watch it once just to say you watched it that's perfect because then you can at least see how it influenced other films and how it was influenced by films before it yeah and i'm sure we'll we'll get into that a little bit more uh later in the episode but you're you know this is your favorite movie but what are some of your other films that uh you'd love to talk about on a podcast at some point you know possibly even cf3 Oh, well, I can easily talk about John Carpenter's thing. I can talk about Halloween, Phantasm. But then I can go straight over to lesser-known movies like Stay Tuned with John Ritter. Oh, God, I remember uh, that. <laughs> yeah, right? Celtic Pride with Dan Aykroyd and and Ghostbusters. We can go right on down the line. But I would probably um, say the most other lesser-known movie out there is probably Screamers with Peter Weller. Um that was one that came out about 95, 96. I'm probably not remembering correctly, but I remember seeing that in high school in the theaters. And that was a phenomenal science fiction film. And it's got its faults and flaws, but it's also very enjoyable. And I can talk for days about that because I actually wrote, as a fun thing, I wrote a script for a sequel, which will never see the light of day, obviously, because... It just never will, but I had such a good time watching that one. I actually wrote my own idea for what a sequel should be to that movie. I wonder if that's something you could ever dust off one day and like change a few details. But like, look, it's an original script. Let's see what we can yeah, do. Right. With that. Uh, that, to that end, you know, what is how do you guys just decide what films to uh, to cover on the show? Are you do you have to like like uh, send DM to to Dane or, and uh, and Dames and and be like, hey guys, screamers, let's, let's get it, let's make it happen, or like, how does that work? Uh, we like to talk about. Um, we each bring a set of films to the table. We actually have a. 
I'm a bit of a detail freak, so we have like spreadsheets, we have templates, we we like to get details together, and I I create a lot of those. But um, ultimately, we will sometimes talk before or after an episode, or if we get derailed in the middle of an episode and we get off on a tangent on, hey, you know, we could be talking about this movie, we could talk about that movie, and it could be. In between, we could be talking to our guests, and they have great ideas, too. Um, we love our suggestions from any of our listeners. So we, we do like to talk about them, and we come to an agreement on which ones we should be focusing on first and who we have guests that could be lined up to correlate with those. And upcoming episodes, like, you know, we just had Ming Chen, and we went over clerks with him. So we like to have a bit of a tie-in together, and... We, we all have a bunch of movies on our lists that we want to get to. It's an endless source of films to talk about. Yeah, a lot of material for you guys to get to in episode, you know, 116. So uh, we'll all look forward. Mm. We'll all look forward to all that. I know that sounds exhausting. As, as a fellow podcaster, I know sometimes it can be like draining to think about, oh, man, we've got to do a show this week. But, uh, but yeah, you guys have a lot, of, a lot of great stuff ahead, I'm sure. So best of luck with that. Um, Absolutely. Guess, thank you. Yeah, of course. I think that's a, a good enough place as any to transition into a discussion on the today's film. We're going to be talking about Dark City from director Alex Proyas. So let's listen to a little bit of the trailer right now. They come when we sleep. Seeking a cure for their own mortality. To steal our thoughts. Our souls makes us different from them. To shape our memories. We have much to do. To take away human. It is time. Who are they? Who are they? But one of us knows their secret. You saw something, didn't you? I don't think the sun even exists. And one of us... We are running out of time. No escape. ...has the power to stop them. That was a little bit of the trailer for Dark City, directed by Alex Proyas who did The Crow and I, Robot, and also Gods of Egypt, which was, I think, one of the most notorious uh, oh. misfires that year. Did you even see that one? Like, how loyal are, of a Prius head are you? Um, I did not actually see that one in the theaters. I ended up getting that on Blu-ray when it came out, and I watched it with my wife. There's a lot of great ideas there, mm -hmm. but the overall execution just wasn't there. I could see Alex's style in the movie, but the overall execution, I loved some of the actors in it. I just can't say that that was one of my more favorite <laughs> Alex Proyas <laughs> movies. Well, I, I feel like because of things like The Crow, uh, that he he's one of those filmmakers that has a lot of times been you know, marketed as from the visionary director of the crow, like one of those guys. Uh, do you think that that, do you think that there's any, any credence to that? I mean, I think he definitely has a very specific style. If you watch any of his films, I would say there's a little bit of a credence to that. You want to, when you're doing a film and you're doing the marketing, you want to pick out the best highlighted points of their career. And on, Awesomely and unfortunately, it's going to be the crow and dark city. So that when he does like a gods of Egypt or an iRobot, you're assuming you're going to get something amazing and classic and timeless. Like, why would he want to do a movie like gods of Egypt, or why would he want to do anything else? Like, he can he pick and choose? Unfortunately, that's just not how film goes. And you know, he 
he gives a great effort every time. Just some of the efforts, you know, you just can't keep going back to the well with that. You could say George Lucas and Star Wars, but when you say Alex Preuss, The Crow in the Dark City, where's the follow-up on that? There's nothing else to differentiate to add to his now resume. Right, right. And then it's The Crow and the I, and I Robot were actually financial hits at the box office, I believe. And this one, not as much. So this came out February right. 1998. And made 14 million domestically, 27 worldwide, against reportedly a budget budget of about 27. So it, I guess, with theatrical run, kind of broke even, depending marketing costs and things like that. But it was right. clearly uh, one of the more. It was also one of the more polarizing films as far as with critics and audiences. Famously, you know, we mentioned this actually when I was on CF3 that Roger Ebert like loved this film, considered it one of the best of that year, did a commentary track on the DVD. So it's, it's really become a, a true cult film. So tell me a little bit about when did you first see it and how, how your you know, love for it started and has grown since then. Well, I remember I went and I saw this when I was in high school. At that time, I was going to just about any movie I could on the weekend. If I had friends to go with me, that was great. If not, I went by myself and I would some of the time do a double feature with two movies because of, you know, we're kids, there's time. If you had the money to do it, you, you went and saw two movies. Or if you were some people, you would just go buy for one movie and mm -hmm. slip on over to another screen for the other movie while everybody was crossing through the lobby. I'm sure some people remember doing that back in the day. I but don't know what you're talking about, Jeff, and I don't, I don't appreciate <sighs> your judgment. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think we've all done it once before. <laughs> <laughs> but then I got I I felt weird at times and so I just started paying for that. So I ended, I think I made up for it in the long run. But I didn't do that for like this movie. I went and specifically saw this because of the trailers I was seeing on TV during like any of the other shows I was watching, which I'm a wrestling fan, so I would I would see these during wrestling, uh, specifically WCW Nitro because this was a Warner product. So they were playing this during like Nitro and Monster Vision um, at that time. So I was getting a kick out of ooh, that looks interesting. Oh, it's by the guy from The Crow, and then oh, Kiefer Sutherland's in it sweet William Hart even better and I don't know that Rufus dude but this looks pretty cool and the music to the trailer which they were interspersing with a lot of the TV spots at the time is really cool starts off slow starts picking up a little techno and then it starts hitting with some riffs at the end and it's just I just I had to go see that I made it my must see because I hadn't even seen much of the crow yet i had only seen part of it at a friend's house so i only was like oh that that's that guy but i've never finished watching that movie well i'm still gonna go see it anyway and it was just phenomenal i walked out of that theater with a new appreciation for film noir science fiction it hit all the sweet spots for me from mystery all the way through all the other genres it was touching have you had you seen a lot of techno noir up to that point i mean blade runner things like that I had tried to watch Blade Runner. Uh, I'll go ahead and I'll say it. I hated Blade Runner for the longest time. I couldn't even watch it on television. Tried to watch it on home video. I would fall asleep. I found it obscenely slow and boring. This was also at the time when I thought 2001 was probably the dullest movie ever made. Until I got to this movie and I started to shift my taste a little bit. 
gone were the days of, oh, I'm going to go see James Bond and then I'm going to turn right around and go watch Jason X. I started to feel, oh, well, that's my kind of movie. It was very good story, well-written, characters right on down the line. And at that point, I started to shift. It wasn't until after college and I took some history in, of film classes that I started to get a little bit more into filmmaking and, un, and appreciating the work that went into it. It wasn't until a few years ago I saw Blade Runner and I can look back and say, oh, okay, yeah, I clearly changed my tastes somewhere in my early 20s because I can watch that now and it's a fantastic movie. Yeah, it's it's definitely, I think, a little bit of an acquired taste, the original Blade Runner, uh, just right. because, the as you mentioned, the pacing is very slow. Like Initially, I actually found the film more interesting than entertaining. Like It's, it's almost more fun to read analysis of the film than actually watching the film. I'd Str- agree with that. Strangely enough. And uh, yeah. I think Dark City is, is kind of a curious case, too, because it's coming out late 90s, early 2000s, where... All uh, like um, action sci-fi is, is the hallmarks are like the black leather coats and the techno music. I'm thinking of things like Blade and um, obviously the Matrix and then like Underworld, right. things like that. Like this is right in that sweet spot. Do you how much do you of an influence do you feel like Dark City, which was obviously influenced itself by things like Metropolis and Blade Runner and things like that. How much right. of an influence do you think that has had, I guess, immediately after since a lot of people attribute The Matrix and some of its themes and, and stuff to this film or since then? Good uh, little side story is The Matrix was shooting at almost the same time as Dark City and they actually reused a lot of the sets. So there was a little bit of a, a crisscross of some of the crew. So they were seeing what Dark City was doing and they incorporated some of that into The Matrix. So The Matrix literally did borrow from Dark City in some of their sets and lighting. In a way, would you almost consider these two, I don't know, kind of kind of sister films in a strange way? Because they do have, I mean, obviously we're, we're, gonna, we're here to talk about Dark City, not The Matrix, right. but it's kind of impossible to bring up Dark City without talking about The Matrix since, as you mentioned, there, there's a lot of commonalities with the production. Matrix was usually successful and influential, and Dark City has a cult following and didn't really break out from there, at least during its theatrical run. Um, right. would you consider them like, how, like related? And if so, in what way? I would consider them more cousins because I feel the matrix goes way more into science fiction and the later films go more into fantasy elements than, than anything. Mm-hmm. But the matrix, yeah, I would consider them cousins because they did, uh, have very similar styles to them. The writing's a little bit different. The editing's a little bit different. The cinematography matches up pretty well. I would say they're cousins, maybe companion pieces to one another. It is very enjoyable to watch both of them because I did watch both in the theater. And and I would say Dark City actually made me want to watch The Matrix because all the press leading up to The Matrix, and yes, we'll get back on Dark City, but the press leading up to The Matrix, I'm seeing the similar colors. I'm seeing great architecture. And I had just gotten experienced off of Dark City from that. And I just, I couldn't get enough of that. I want, hey, I want to see that. That looks pretty interesting because up to a point, I had heard about The Matrix before and I thought, oh, Keanu Reeves. Wonderful. I can't wait to see how horrible this movie is. 
well, at least Dark City had loosened me up enough. You could consider that a little bit of a, a couple of shots before mm-hmm. trying something else. Pre-game. And yeah, pre-game. I went and I saw Matrix, and when I, the time I walked out of that theater, I'm like, damn, that was, that was pretty good. But, man, that reminded me of Dark City. I'm going to go watch Dark City now. And I, I didn't even know about any of the shared sets or anything at that time. I just... It felt very, very similar, but also very unique and different from one another. So it's, you can say there, there's influence, but I think that's where the, where the comparisons stop. Mm-hmm. There's some similar themes that I noticed uh, being a huge fan of the Matrix, as I mentioned, the nature of reality. There's a lot of talk about, you know, dreams and philosophy and things like that in here. But right. I mean, that's kind of common in, in sci-fi in general. Um, yes. But there, there are certain elements that, that, called to mind uh, the other film as well. Uh, one thing I really noticed about this film is not only how hyper-stylized it is, but the way, it, the way it's shot, <laughs> uh, it felt very dreamlike to me. There's drifting cameras, there's shadows, they're messing with their perspective. Uh, there's one scene where I think Jennifer Connelly's coming in to see Kiefer Sutherland, and he turns around, and we're like from her POV. Um, it, it's, and it felt to me really encapsulated in a line that, that Murdoch has where he says, I feel like I'm living out someone else's nightmare. And that essentially feels to me what Proyas was going for with this film. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. The whole thing plays out like some weird dream sequence that, you know, maybe Inception got an idea from or even Existence by David Cronenberg. Like there's clearly the the idea of personal identity and memory alterations and who you are and who you can become or who you choose to be based off of what you do or don't know. Yeah. So the the overall premise of the film is we should just say for people that haven't seen this, which might be a lot depending on the listenership, um, these creatures called the strangers, which I guess they don't even explicitly, do they explicitly tell you, I think maybe in in the narration up front that they are aliens yeah, that that's part of the problem with the theatrical version right. is they give a little bit of that away way too soon. Um, I think the studio thought we need to tip everybody off that, you know, there's more to this story. Please don't tune out too fast because the reveal is more like halfway through the movie right. of what's going on. But then again, you can watch the director's cut where that's completely removed and you can actually follow along with John Murdoch as he's going through the twists and turns of everything. And that brings that back around. And so having that narration is great for, for some people, for others, I would almost have that removed entirely so that you can experience the film as it should be experienced from point A to point B to point C, not, Oh, here's a little cliff notes version here at the beginning, but we're going to hope that you forget about it so that when we drop the twist, you will, appreciate that oh hey there's still a twist from what i understand the director's cut the other changes are basically just extended scenes more like establishing shots and things like that i know you went back and watched both versions recently um is that that sound, sound about right and would you still prefer the theatrical cut overall I would prefer the theatrical just because of that's how I got into the movie. And I never knew about the director's cut till like years later when they let Alex Preuss actually go back and do that for home video. And that was also at the time when a lot of director's cuts were starting to pop up across the board for all sorts of different films. Nobody had really experienced such a thing except from like Blade Runner with the multiple cuts, the TV cuts with Halloween and Halloween 2. Um, until more director's cuts were coming out, a lot of us had only 
okay, well, the theatrical is the only version we're ever going to get. That's what was out on VHS initially. Didn't come out until DVD like years later when the director's cut came out. So a lot of us fans of Dark City only had to experience the theatrical. So unfortunately, you had to basically knuckle under on that in hindsight. Um, I'd still go back and say the theatrical version is a good version. I would almost tell you to skip the narration if possible. Just fast forward through the first minute right until you see uh, the zoom into the window and Rufus Sewell, John Murdoch, is sitting in the bath, laying in the bath. Since Perea seems like he's going for more of a dreamlike feel, I, I do think that the film, this, this story benefits by having it be basically in and in and out like 100 minutes or something, which I think the film is about that. Rather than protracting that and really getting lost in the mythos, you're more along for this, the ride and grasping for answers like Murdoch is throughout most of it. So right. I think that's a good call. So going into the way the film starts, again, he's, you know, we're learning a lot about the mythology with the strangers and the tuning. Uh, watching this for the first time and then now, how, how did you, how do you feel about the way that all works? And apparently in, in my little bit of research I did before this, that the look of the strangers prey is based on a riffraff from Rocky Horror Picture Show. And at the time when I watched this, probably 99 or, or 2000, I didn't realize that Richard O'Brien was in this movie as one of the principal characters, uh, principal villains, Mr. Hand. Uh, yep. What do you care to comment on that? Well, I think that's great that he could find something out of a Rocky Horror Picture Show and be like, that's what I want to design these guys to look like, yeah. only to come back around and actually put him in the role. And he absolutely nails the villain, his presence, his charisma just exudes through his portrayal of that. I couldn't see anybody else doing that role. I mean, I really couldn't. Yeah, no, he's so great in, in this uh, in this film as the villain and brings that same sort of uh, off kilter presence to the to Mr. Hand that he does to Riff Raff. And uh, I, there was a lot of other there was even other characters in here, other actors in the cast. Bruce Spence plays another one of the strangers. And I know he's from uh, the Matrix Revolutions and the Road Warrior and Star Wars right. Episode three. And he's been in a bunch of bunch of things. Uh, it, it's also telling that you know, you have Jennifer Connelly and William Hurt, who were both eventual Oscar winners. And then uh, Rufus Sewell, who is best known for being the main guy in Dark City, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> what, what did you what do you think of his performance here? Did you do you think he filled out the role particularly well or, or were you you know, what, what are your, your take on that? Well, I think he did exceptionally well. I knew nothing of him going into this movie. And I'm not sure where A Knight's Tale comes around, but that's the only other movie a lot of other people might recognize that he was in with Heath Ledger. So the rock and roll fantasy, we're, we'll drop in, we're dropping references left and right here. <laughs> but uh, Rufus just, you, you don't know him, so you don't have this preset notion of how he should be played, how he should be carried, how he should exude his emotions or emote because other candidates in the running, if rumors are to believed was Tom Cruise was rumored to be presented this script and was reading it at the time. And luckily he, he passed on that. And there was, um, I forgot there was somebody else that was rumored to be cast for, for John Murdoch, but it didn't pan out. And I don't know, getting Rufus Sewell was just, I thought he was fantastic. All of the actors I thought were outstanding throughout. And Rufus Sewell has to really sell 
because his character is, is essentially a blank slate throughout the whole movie. He has no idea what the hell's going on until, I don't know, middle of the film or end of the second act, like around there where he starts to piece it together little by little. He's basically just living in a in a film noir story uh, up to that point, trying to unravel everything. Uh, and and he, that's that's really a challenge for an actor to carry a film with a character that basically doesn't have doesn't really have a whole lot of depth to him just because he doesn't know who he is he, he's literally right. testing himself as the, you know testing himself goes he goes um he goes back with a uh, with a prostitute and just to see if he can have if he if he has it in him to kill her because he thinks he's this uh the serial killer that's going around and killing call girls um and things like that which is of course part of the stranger's plan to, to to figure out exactly where identity comes from because their their race is dying. That's actually another thing that I felt like I, I would have liked a little more insight on. Like I, you know, you hear Kiefer Sutherland at the beginning of the film with the voiceover, and then later on explain that the strangers, their world, and their race is dying. I would have liked a little more. Uh, I don't know backstory or elaboration on exactly what what their true nature is because you don't really see. Like, I guess you don't really see their. Do we see their home world? Is that where they're supposed to be, where they're all hanging out? Or is that underneath the city? Um, they don't actually show that. They don't actually explain that at all. That's actually one of those questions that is probably left unanswered intentionally. Mm-hmm. Based on, um, I watched some of the making ofs again for the first time in a while, and Alex Preuss actually made a point about a lot of people said there's no, this film is all style and no substance, but I beg to disagree. It's more all substance and missing style at points. And there's fair criticism for this, that, and the other. But he also made a point to say not everything should be answered. Mm-hmm. Lots of things should be left up to interpretation because everybody will understand and comprehend things much differently. So when I watched the movie, I, when the reveal was that this is a city floating in space, the fact you don't see a planet anywhere nearby you just see like the most nearest star that would replicate as the sun almost makes you wonder okay where the hell are they yeah. there's nothing to actually make you think oh maybe they're just above earth or they're above their home world they're out in the middle of freaking nowhere and that's even more of a conundrum in my book because it gives you that other tease of where they're in the middle of absolutely nowhere. Could um, the strangers be hiding from another race? Could they be out conducting their own experiments and the rest of their races at their home? I mean, there's, there's lots of questions you could be asking, but I really enjoyed the fact that they're out in the middle of nowhere. There's no sign of help. You are stuck there. There's no escaping. And that's a really great reveal too, when um, he's tearing, cause this whole, the whole film Murdoch is, uh, obsessed with getting to Shell Beach, which which I know this was obviously not intentional whatsoever, but it reminded me of Truman Show, where he's just like, I got to get to the beach, I got to get to the water and get on the boat and go across, and only to find himself up against a, a wall, yeah. basically. But in this one, he breaks through the wall, and it's just like open space, not not uh, not a you know not a an asteroid, a planet, or star, or like not like nothing really in sight when he opens that. Um, and it makes sense that that he doesn't want to explain things too much. And I know some of the, the the cocktail of influences here involve like you know Franz Kafka and the Twilight Zone and things like that. It's just exactly yeah yeah. It's you know I just I always want more more of this. And I guess that's the idea right to explain a little bit more about what's going on. But it, ultimately, that would do a disservice to the film. I actually agree with you on that. 
Well, it could you could also say that would be a good setup to have an expanded universe. You know, if somebody wanted to do a book, if somebody wanted to do an art book, if somebody wanted to do a video game, you could dive into some of those other tidbits to intersperse. I mean, he what Alex wasn't designing this to be a franchise. He wasn't designing this for anything. It was his story. It just got tweaked a little bit by Goyer. But there's a lot there you could go into if they ever decided they wanted to expand or if they ever wanted to do a TV show, I would not be opposed. Yeah, there's a lot of room um, to expand this idea and and uh, explore it a little bit more. It almost makes me wonder now that we're in the age of reboots where everything that was successful and or not successful <laughs> seems like it's coming back around. It makes me wonder if someone's going to be like a reimagining of of Dark City, uh, you know, and make that happen at some point. It would be, you know, it would actually be really cool to see Proyas himself have the chance to do that. I know, like, back in the day, Cecil B. DeMille did the Ten Commandments and then, what, 20, 30 years later or something made the Ten Commandments on a much yep. bigger budget and bigger scale. It would be fun for him to have a chance to uh, you know, to have more of a budget and, you know, today's technology and, and uh, make that happen. I don't know. I don't know what studio would, would give him the money for that, considering I think Gods of Egypt was his last film and it did not do particularly yeah. well. So um, why, you know, that kind of lends, leads to this question. Why do you think the film performed so poorly? Was it the marketing? Was it the fact that no one knows who Rufus Sewell is, I guess, still to now to, to an extent? I don't think you can pinpoint one thing entirely, although you can point at a lot of things. Uh, it's probably a situation of circumstance. The The marketing wasn't that great. I mean, yes, I saw that in the middle of a wrestling show and in the middle of Monster Vision. Not everybody, you know, that doesn't target your, your mass audience of everybody out there. The genre is a bit niche. Um, at that time, noir was not really a thing. If you got wind that something was a mystery, unless it was like law and order on TV or a police procedural, a lot of people weren't tuning into that. They were tuning into NYPD Blue. They weren't going to tune in to see, oh, this looks like one of them dumb sci-fi movies. So th- I would I would point to the marketing a bit on that. The, the lack of faith from the studio, the fact that they wanted to put in a narration. It tells me that there was more influence going in on that regarding the finished product. Maybe they weren't happy. So, oh, we're only going to give you like a couple million for marketing and we just want this to die a quiet death. I don't know what else you could really point to other than, you know, the niche, the, the marketing was bad, but, you know, press tours, there was no press junkets. There was no big premiere. There was... Not a lot of word of mouth at that time. The internet was still very young. So a lot of people couldn't connect right away about, hey, this was cool. Because at that time, internet was basically AOL, Compaq, and whatever rinky-dink dial-up connection you could get. So you could download a picture that would take 25 minutes to download a picture. Yes, that was a thing back then. <laughs> yeah. So th- you know, it's just a product. I would say it's a product of its time. If this movie came out, say, probably 10 years later, like 2006, I think you would be looking at probably a much bigger pull in from the audience because every genre goes through a cycle. You know, you have the, the Scream movies that basically made parodies of slasher movies. Well, now you got Jordan Peele coming back with horror. Horror's have, having a resurgence the last few years, and now Jordan Peele's 
really driving it forward back into the mainstream. So just like everything goes through a cycle. You could also almost kind of pinpoint maybe even, I don't know, maybe in Inception or some other, like there are a lot of more, uh, for lack of a less cliche term, thinking man sci-fi movies that have come out in the right. last few years. I'm thinking of things like uh, Arrival or uh, Interstellar and things like that where where sci-fi movies that really challenge you that that uh, maybe not in this vein, maybe not so much with noir, but um, that really, you know, that aren't just designed for mass consumption. They're not, you know, they're not the Marvel right. movies. They're not like Fast and Furious or whatever. They're like, there's more of a, uh, a heavy... Uh, thematic underpinning to the whole thing uh, rather right. than just actions. Because this movie, it's, it's doesn't really have like a lot of quote action, like in the way that the matrix does, like the matrix is an action film. This is more yes. of a thriller sci-fi noir, you know, um, it plays with a lot of different genres, but it doesn't really, I mean, there's a chase scene here and there, but it doesn't really delve into uh, too much even with the with big effects other, other than the the uh, tuning effect that we see several times throughout the film right i would agree with that and um i like all sorts of movies so i i completely agree with you that you know movies that are complex definitely have their audience i like my complex movies i also like my brain dead movies like i could just watch friday the 13th all day long and then turn right around and watch Blade Runner 2049. I could watch Existence. I could turn right around and watch 2001 and actually enjoy it as well. So I, I would agree with you on that. I also discovered in my research that there's a lot of anachronisms built into uh, To Dark City and the fact that Proyas is trying to make it very vague what time period this is or, or exactly what what's going on. Uh, they never explain nope. that at, at all. Like, we don't know if they're in the 50s, the 60s, 21, whatever. And uh, I, I think that's an interest, a really interesting approach to take because like Murdoch, we are totally thrown for a loop and we're very much, obviously, he's the audience surrogate. He wakes up completely lost, as are we. Uh, so, so I like that, that aesthetic to it, uh, other than the noir tropes, as I mentioned, everybody has really tremendous hat game going around, which I appreciated as a fedora, as a fedora head, <laughs> literally it's where I put my fedoras. So, uh, so yeah, I liked a lot of the design in this film, I think was, was really, uh, was really interesting as well as the, which I guess is the underlying question that I even have a, a quote from Poria saying that. One of the things that we're exploring in this film is what it is that makes us who we are. And when you strip an individual of his identity, is there some spark, some essence there that keeps him from being human, keeps him being human, keep, gives him some sort of identity. So that sounds like that's essentially his underlying premise here is if we take away everybody's uh, memories and we reconfigure everyone, because the implication here is that the strangers every night change things, everybody falls asleep. And uh, wake up, wakes up in a completely different world, and that's that's their experiment. Talk, talk a little bit about what it is about that idea that that's compelled you to revisit the film over the years. Well, I like uh, the fact that it's you know it, it's reminiscent of the swirl mark. You could focus on one point of the story, follow it around the swirl as it winds out and winds out and winds out, and you can pick the different characters and the different tangents and trajectories they all go on. This time, I focused more on. Um, Bumstead, Inspector Bumstead, William Hurt's character, and watching how his character evolved. And I had never really paid too much attention to him, even though I thought he was outstanding as well. 
but I liked to pick out the different characters. You could look at Emma and her particular trajectory. And then you could look at John's. You could look at Dr. Schreiber's with Kiefer Sutherland. And I like that because it's reminiscent of the swirl. It's reminiscent of the, the rats in the maze. It almost felt like that city, that whole sequence with Dr. Schreiber, with the rats in the maze and the cheese in the center, the cheese is Shell Beach. And everybody else in the city is, you know, if they wake up in the middle of one of these awakening or, you know, the implanting of the the dreams and the memories, they wake up like that. They turn out and turn into that crazy detective that went completely nuts. And then you end up finding out if you followed his trajectory specific trajectory specifically, you found out that he's actually known everything all along. And he really wasn't as nuts as it was initially implied that he actually was likely doing that to throw them off the scent and to keep moving until he could get a chance to find somebody else like him, let them know what's going on, somebody who might actually affect the change. And then that little drop in the water rippled then from there. And then he took himself out. So I liked all the complexities of that, the different trajectories. I just, I can't get enough. So when you can go back and rewatch a movie and pick up on something else, if you can focus on that, you are, you are expanding your own world with the stories that were going on. Cause there's more than just John Murdoch going on. For sure. And watching it this time, I really did. I did notice a lot of uh, Eddie Walensky, who's the nutcase detective that you there mentioned there. Um, yeah. One, because I, I found, well, one, I noticed the actor as one of the primary antagonists from Darkman, Colin Friels plays uh, the, I guess, the main bad guy in Darkman, the Sam Raimi film from 1990. And so I noticed him right away. But I also like the fact that he 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 it's he's basically what Murdoch could have become had he not had the ability to tune. Like had Murdoch's story go a different way, that would have been exactly. his role in Dark City. So it was almost like a a cautionary tale to Murdoch seeing Eddie jump on the tracks so of like I need to figure this out because otherwise <laughs> I'm gonna be laying right next to that guy. Exactly. And they, it, from what it sounded like in the original story, it was originally supposed to be centered around Inspector Bumgartner. And as he's uncovering the details of the mystery, he becomes like Walensky. Like he becomes crazy towards the end. And it's a completely different story. So that just plays right back into that. Yeah. Inspector Bumstead got the, uh, the, the bad, bad end in this movie, unfortunately. Oh, he's, yeah. He's, poor, uh, poor William Hurt. Uh, and the other thing, too, that I noticed when I watched this originally years ago, Kiefer Sutherland's performance I found really off-putting. I don't, I know that's probably intentional, but I, I don't know if it's maybe because Kiefer Sutherland, you think of more like the Lost Boys or you think of like Jack Bauer. And here he is playing completely against type. Uh, right. How, what do you what do you think? How do you think that performance actually works considering what we know of Kiefer Sutherland? Because uh, I think I think it does. I just I take some getting used to for me. Yeah, I my experience with Kiefer Sutherland with the Lost Boys, unpopular opinion. I don't like the Lost Boys. I don't like it that much either, honestly. I think it's fine, but some people like some people are are all about that film, and I don't really understand why. Yeah, I don't understand why either. Hey, you can love the movie; that's completely cool. I just don't agree with it being a great movie. But you know, that's just semantics. Same thing with like Flatliners. I thought. Kiefer Sutherland was pretty good in that one, um, considering the cast that was going on. He was a little more eccentric in that. But in this movie, 
This is where I actually was able to just see him kind of by himself instead of part of like this gigantic ensemble of five other people around him at all times. He actually got to play off of people like William Hurt, Rufus Sewell, Emma, uh, Jennifer Connelly, uh, The Strangers, Richard O'Brien. I thought his character work was outstanding. And since my experience with him before that was pretty meh, um, to see this sort of turn, I'm like, wow, this is incredible. And I think it's probably the most understated and underrated performance in the whole movie because he like he stays in the background at all times. Mm-hmm. But when it's his time to interject into the story, he really just gels right in. Like he's been at the forefront of the movie the entire time. And yes, he's very integral to the plot. He's very integral to what his game was the entire time was just to give Murdoch, oh, this guy might actually be able to do something, but I have to plan this very, very carefully or I'm a dead guy. And he, when he finally had the chance to give him the, the instructions on how to use the powers, it just, the light bulb went off on, he executed his plan. It took a lot of different turns, but the, the look in his eyes and the slight grin on his face as he backed away of, come on, come on, you can do it. Come on, you can do it. A little Dr. Frankenstein-esque. And that just, when Rufus Sewell popped up as John Murdoch and melted the chair behind him, and it was on. And just the sheer, and then the cage being pulled apart and Kiefer dropping like, like a rock. Man, I just thought his performance was just outstanding. And then he goes off and he does Jack Bauer, which is completely mm-hmm. different. And that's that's what he's going to be known for for the rest of his life. And, hey, that's great. He's a great actor. Um, I think he should be way more up on the totem pole in my book. I think he'd be a great DC or Marvel villain if they ever wanted to open up the, the paycheck books. I'm not sure who you would uh, want to cast him as, but... Man's outstanding, and he he had a great performance in this movie. Yeah, and the fact that throughout most of it, he is basically, I mean, as the audience watching it, you don't, you have no idea what the the full extent of the mystery is until it unfolds right. naturally by the end. So you're just watching this, trying to figure out where his alliance has really lie throughout the whole thing, because he's basically double agenting it, as you mentioned, to get Murdoch into that position so that he can in, in, uh, inject him with all those memories and print him with uh, the, uh, I guess, training him to, to be able to tune at the same level as the strangers. And I thought right. that that sequence was one of the highlights of the film. The whole... Um, flashes through Murdoch's head where we've already seen a lot of them over the course of the film and and now like um, you know uh, Schreiber is the uh, the guy like delivering you know something to his house and the person the, the guy that sold him ice cream that one time and like all that I thought that was a really cool idea and uh, it, it nicely plays off of the idea of memories and how they impact us and uh you know how identity is wrapped in there and everything because in an instant murdoch has decades of experience and and knowledge and and everything it's it's uh it's a really cool moment when when that happens yeah i couldn't agree more i that just reminded me like when they were doing that dream sequence and and the flashes one of my favorite lines was when the kid was floating up the stairs and he goes 
now you're getting it. Now you're <laughs> yeah, catching yeah. on. And I'm like, that's just in normal Kiefer Sutherland voice. Like he pulls out of that performance he was doing for all of the inner flashes sequences that were going on. He was pulling out different, different traits, different grins, different, different sorts of everything. And, but that moment just stuck out with me last night when I was watching the director's cut of now you're starting to get it and you could feel that I could feel the chills and the hair coming along my neck. Like, Oh, superpower guy time for a big <laughs> battle. We're building, we're, we're right there at the, the climax of this whole thing. And what's going to happen next. And just that gets me every time. I also wanted to point out uh, Richard O'Brien again, as obviously as Mr. Hand, it, I really like the fact that he imprints himself with the same memories that Murdoch has. And this is essentially Proyas's uh, opportunity to illustrate that it isn't necessarily the memories, the identity that you have, it's the choices you make based on that. And he ends up becoming the villain that, that Murdoch was intended to be. So it creates an interest, a, a, a kind of a fun dichotomy between the, the hero and the villain, which, you know, is always key to, to really creating strong antagonists that they're essentially the same, but different of the hero in a lot of ways. Uh, what do you, you know, what do you, what do you feel about the, that relationship and how it plays out? Well, that's a really good, good point on that is that they're basically the, the same, they're the different side of the same coin. Right. And the second he becomes imprinted with the memories, there's a little bit of catching up he's having to do, which, you know, the other strangers, when they're seeing this, they're like, why are you wasting your time with this prostitute? He's like, oh, just give me a few minutes. We're, we're not finished here yet. The little sparkle in his eye as he's starting to feel the, the power to have control over life like this is different from every other stranger that's there. They are a hive mind, and he's now starting to get a little bit of freedom. Mm-hmm. And he wants to test, take these memories and these experiences out for a test drive and you know somebody's got to finish the job somebody's got to play this out it's clearly not john murdoch but i'm going to complete the experience here so he's starting to pick up on that then he's starting to think oh where would he go to next because everything's starting to really meld together with him and so he goes to see emma and then he goes to uncle carl's house and then they start catching up and that's when they start encountering a little more back and forth between them. And I just thought that was a a great little twist because you're wondering at some point, okay, this Mr. Hand guy is pretty cool, but is there anything else he's going to do? And then you imprint him and he takes it to another level of creepiness and Mm -hmm. evilness. And that just, you had to give the strangers a singular character to focus in on as that guy is an SOB. That guy is got to go. The rest of them, yeah, they're not likable in the least. They're doing things completely the wrong way. But a lot of them, you can, they're, they're trying to fight for their survival. This one's going off the reservation and he's doing some very bad things. And even they're looking at him like, what are you doing? So he really was able to stand out from all of that. So I, I like the character play between them and the twists like that. And that's that's basically, you know, classic screenwriting logic. If you're going to have an evil group or an evil organization, you have to have one figurehead to to embody that, whether it's 
to go back to that, Adrian Smith in The Matrix or, uh, right. you know, uh, Ash from Alien or whatever, different, different, uh, whatever sci-fi, big bad, the company or Cyberdyne or whatever it happens to be, you have to have a figurehead to embody that. And I like, you know, to your point, Mr. Hand basically just like, sees this as his opportunity to break free from the hive, to distinguish himself, and also just kind of co-ops the simulation, more or less, that was laid out for Murdoch uh, as a vehicle to do so. So, yeah, that was a, that's that's a really, a really interesting... Uh, it's a really cool character, and it, it's fun to see Richard O'Brien uh, kind of let oh, loose yeah. in this way. I wonder if part of the... <laughs> part of why this society is dying out, I mean... It is all male, so I don't know if they considered that 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 might be part of why they're not being able to reproduce or stay or stick around. I they never again. That's another thing they never talk about, like uh, that the fact that they are all male, how they reproduce, what how that all works. So I know one of the many many in, uh, deliberately unanswered questions of Dark City. Yeah, that they, that's out there. However, um, it's it's important to note that at some point they do indicate that all of the aliens are inhabiting dead human male bodies so whether whether they are all male or or not inside in their normal energy state uh, that is the underlying question on okay so why exactly are they having this problem but the fact that they are um inhabiting these hosts um these dead male hosts makes you wonder okay so what's really going on because that even takes you to a different place on well they're they're sort of an energy being. What is the deal? That's probably part of why I felt like I wanted more on that because you don't know about their yes. home world. You don't know. Yeah, they do. They do mention that they did that they're assuming dead bodies. I forgot that part because it is like basically a throwaway line. And if you like blink, you 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 miss that detail. So you're just like, what is up with all these white pasty guys? Why are they? What's, what's <laughs> yeah, pretty their much. Issue? What's their issue? Uh, but then when they when they die, you see like this sort of CG creature energy being come out of their uh, come out of their mouth and uh, and stuff. So yeah, I guess they they do delve into that slightly. So that's a, that's a good point. Uh, we didn't really mention Jennifer Connelly too much. Um, so her thing is that she believes that she had an affair, and that's why her marriage is sort of on the rocks. And again, I guess. They're trying the stranger. What do you think the stranger's goal is there to see if Murdoch will retaliate against his wife, basically, right? Yeah, I think that's what their intent was is, you know, he's the serial killer. He's trying to get even with her. Then what's he do when he's done killing all these other prostitutes? Is he going to go back? Is then he going to be like at that level of pure evil and badness? Is he going to? go ahead and he's going to kill her or what exactly is going to happen. It just goes back to the whole, this is an experiment just to see how people tick mm-hmm. and they wanted to see like the reactions play out. So um, that I would think that that's what the end goal was, was to see if he would kill her or not. So, I mean that, that wasn't really stated. So that's a really good question. And I love the fact that you, if you take away the strangers and the explanation up front, like if you, if you remove the, sci-fi element of the story that that is basically the premise of a really solid noir mystery this guy is going around you know accused of killing these these call girls and doesn't remember what happened and he needs to find his identity it you know it, it is kind of in and of itself like you could almost make a film just based on that so then there's this entirely yes. other level to the film which i think you know is why the noir elements are so uh, are so 
satisfying in this film because it, it's almost like you can almost imagine the strangers going back watching a bunch of James Cagney films and be like, oh, we could we could do one of those. Let's everybody's wearing hats <laughs> and like this guy kills <clears throat> people and his, his his wife cheating on him with another man and he's sitting at a desk drinking shots and ooh he's gonna get get back to her you know. Uh, there's a cop involved and all that, you know, I, I really like the that diner, the yes. him talking to himself about what his names are. The fact that everything looks like it's straight out of either the forties, the fifties or the sixties. The fact that it looks like part of it was shot in New York. Some of it was shot in London. Just everything's all over the place just to keep you off balance from, from picking out like exactly what's going on. Yeah. It's a little bit like uh, galaxy quest. So they studied the historical documents go. of film noir. And so they're like, Oh, well we can, we can easily work with that. Yeah, we we can do we could do a ship. We can oh, we can actually have the enemies too. Sweet. <laughs> the strangers. Let, let, ju- let's just, not stuff it up. <laughs> the strangers are just aspiring filmmakers. I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, you could say that, and maybe one of them will have some talent at some point. But oh wait, I think they're all dead now. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, Mr. Hand was on his last legs there at the end. Uh, so I really like the way that the, I, lo- I love the way that the film ends implying that Murdoch and Emma, now Anna, are going to start over and, and, uh, I guess have a chance to, you know, pursue their own, their own ends with no, not being a part of an experiment. Right. Uh, where do you, you know, if they did do a sequel or a comic book or anything, where would you, how would you want them to build off? Would it continue with this storyline from the end, would it be more set before uh, Murdoch's journey? Like, what would you want to see next? I'd actually like to see them do a, if if it was to happen, uh, a sort of a direct follow up. I'd almost like to see he knows everything still. She does not. He could be telling her everything of what happened, and she will look at him like he's completely nuts. He's got to completely restore that trust. And then we don't know for sure that all of the strangers are dead. So you could have a little bit of them scurrying around in the shadows trying to reassert their authority because, quite frankly, this is still their ship, their satellite, their their basic resting spot. There's probably places for them to hide and gain their composure. I think there's something that could be said about them trying to play another mystery, uh, set another experiment to try to get everything back under control. Because unless you are sure that all of them are dead, you could go into the the possibilities of what would they do to, to retaliate? Could they have a new Mr. Hand? Could there be uh, somebody else? It makes you wonder. The, the only problem, I think, with, with per- continuing this uh, as a franchise would be that the trick that this film plays, hooking you with the, the film noir aspects and then revealing the full extent of the mystery, that that can only really be played once. So from that, right. you have to really... And this is, again, not to keep going back to this, but this is kind of the same issue that I think the Matrix sequels had for a lot of people is that the first one is a slow unveiling and it's this premise that's so uh, so different and so thought-provoking and then you get to the sequels and you're just like, oh, okay, I guess now we're just living in, in this world. And Zion's not really as interesting. It was more fun hearing about Zion than going there and seeing everybody jump around all sweaty. <laughs> oh, I know? agree on that. <laughs> I mean, you could also pick out like the Alien franchise. Alien is very singular and very intimate uh, then you go to Aliens and it's all hell breaks loose. Right. 
And then you go right to Alien 3, which is a complete freaking disaster. So ultimately, I'd say don't do anything. Or if you were going to do something, do a video game so you could expand on what happened on the events in the movie. Maybe stuff leading up to it. Maybe a little bit after. Accentuate all the, the points in the middle where you could fill in other gaps of information. I think uh, a game... I mean, I hate to go video gaming on here, but, you know, you could do a Batman Arkham City where you had Batman Arkham Asylum and then you could start building on that and including more and more and more. I'd almost rather they don't do another movie if they were going to do it, uh, a reboot, maybe not a big fan of those. But yeah, I guess, I guess, you know, there's something that could be mine there, but I'd almost rather they don't and just leave it as is. Yeah, it's such a tricky, um, such a tricky mash uh mashup of genres that they'd have to to nail the tone just right or take it like you mentioned with aliens take it in in a kind of a completely different direction and and really uh yeah i'm now i'm thinking also about the the difference between pitch black and the chronicles of riddick and how pitch black was kind of a fun fun little movie chronicles of riddick is completely different like way blown out like almost like oh yeah epic so i i wonder if they'd have to go good you know take it to that extent and open up the scope a lot more yeah that that's a very good point i am a big fan of pitch black and chronicles just went way too way too epic and and overblown yeah yeah that's the risk they would run with more dark city so right uh before we start winding down is there anything about the film theme story performances anything that we haven't uh that you wanted to make talk make sure we talk about uh just that um Patrick Totopoulos, since we brought up Pitch Black, was very involved with the the design of the movie. So I wanted to point that out because the cinematography, um, the scoring is outstanding. I just want to give a special credit to, to those guys and the whole effort on the movie about how beautiful and how awesome it sounded. Yeah, I actually wanted to, you know, to get in the mindset and making my notes and stuff for this episode. I wanted to listen to the score on Spotify, but it's not there. So I was really bummed about that. Uh, the composer Trevor Jones, uh, who did this one. But yes. yeah, I agree that the music's really, it's really uh, stellar. So hopefully people that are listening to this that haven't seen Dark City will give it a chance. And people that have seen it will go out and buy it on, uh, you know, digital or Blu-ray or 4K or whatever it's out on now. And maybe we can get um get the studio and probably has to do something with it i think there there is there is possibility there so i I like you know i'd i'd like to see i'd like to see that uh explored a little bit more so jeff can you tell everyone where they can find you on social media yeah you can find me at our podcast at cf3 pod we are on twitter we are on instagram we are also on facebook if you want to um get in touch with me specifically i am at Suns and Shadows. That's S U N S A N D S H A D O W S. And that is just my specific Twitter where I do my own little fun side stuff on the side. I like to talk about video games, movies, and have chit chats while um, the last drive in is on. So if you are around when Last Drive-In comes back uh, for its second season, I will be the online presence for CF3 and we will chat. Nice. Excellent. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about Dark City. I, I, I always love when we, when we get to cover films that, uh, like as I did with, with Dane, talking about Sing Street, films that are really are really interesting, have a very specific vision, and somehow escaped getting a, uh, a mainstream audience. So uh, thanks for coming on the show and, and bringing Dark City to us. 
Well, thank you for having me. I'm I'm very honored to be here. You have a great podcast, so keep up the excellent work. Thanks so much. Same to you guys at CF3. Definitely go and uh, and subscribe to that show right now. So, Jeff, again, thanks so much, and uh, have a good one. Thank you. You too. All right. Bye-bye. If you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com slash guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash crookedtable. Of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at crookedtable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob. This has been a production of crookedtable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the little KED.